This is the official podcast of the Academy for Women in Academic Emergency Medicine Anniversary Interviews, celebrating 10 years of progress. This is your host, Michelle Lin, and today I speak with Dr. Basma Safdar, past president of AWIM from 2016 to 17. She's an associate professor at Yale University and an expert in sex and gender-specific cardiovascular emergency medicine. We talk about how involvement in AWIM has advanced both her research career and our understanding of sex and gender in clinical medicine. Uh, so tell me a little bit about where you are in your career right now and how it was that you got there. So I am an associate professor at Yale. Um, I think I define myself as mid-career at this point. About 15 years out of residency, I have been at Yale this entire time. Um, I had a slightly different start in the sense I grew up in Pakistan and I went to medical school there and I started medical school when I was 16. Uh, so kind of had a very different journey, uh, but the school I went to was one of you know the more, most competitive ones in the region. It prepared me well, really gave me the love for clinical medicine and research. So when I came to Yale, uh, that was strengthened a lot more. So I chose to um, to pick a research career here, and I've been here all this time. The only time I've left is to finish a master's degree um, at Harvard a few years ago. Uh, in terms of how I got your question was how, to go, how did I get involved with AWIM? Yes, I, uh, that's the next question, but I also wanted to hear about where you are in your career. So if you want to talk about how either you got involved in uh, your research, which I understand is focused on gender and emergency medicine, um, or in how you got involved with AWIM, either one is fine. So I, I knew that I wanted to do research. I took up, um, uh, I became, when I graduated and became faculty here, I, I uh, was interested in kind of cardiovascular area, and I became the, um, I was given the position of director of chest pain center. So just like you, um, you know, when I started uh, something, then I said, why not collect data? So we created a database for the chest pain center. Um, and over the years, it's become a massive database. But one of the things I learned through that database, looking at it, you know, frequently, were just some clinical observations that chest pain was more common in women, it was, uh, you know, unexplained, and right around that time, the NIH had come out with a study looking at different physiology and progression of atherosclerosis in women. So I became very interested in microvascular disease, which is small vessel disease, uh, which is far more common in women. Um, and my research in the last, what, 10, 15 years has kind of honed in on that. Um, so I initially did some physiological studies, I got extra training both through the masters but also through a vascular lab to do physiological work in the chest pain center patients and that gave the signal that there was actually microvascular dysfunction was indeed much more common in emergency department patients that somebody, people hadn't looked at before. Um, so we created then a phenotype in conjunction with cardiology um, using cardiac PET-CT to diagnose it in, in ED patients. And, you know, that has kind of morphed into more of a multi-system look because as I have spent a lot of time with these patients, I've realized they actually are very complex patients and microvascular disease of one organ doesn't necessarily mean they don't have it of other organs. So I've started looking at it in a multi-system way, looking at both cognitive impairment as well as um, involvement of kidneys and for women, um, 
polycystic ovarian disease and obesity, insulin resistance, so looking at all of these in, in patients who have cor coronary microvascular dysfunction. So that's kind of where I'm at in terms of um, the research path. As part of that, we define a registry now, and we're following these patients, something which is, I guess, not very typical for emergency medicine, but um, I think when you're looking at a question in, with a, with a fine-tooth uh, comb, then you just become much more immersed in it. That's so interesting. I uh, So what you're saying, it sounds like, is that um, both women and women who present to the emergency department have more microvascular disease? Correct. So a, a specific cohort that I did look into are patients with chest pain and more with the patients who have recurrent chest pain. Uh, so the, there are other studies that have looked at it from, um, I think, uh, in some ways, the higher risk group. So patients undergoing angiography then were studied and was found to have more women than men have microvascular dysfunction. And so we're looking at in the low to moderate risk patients who typically form the chest pain observation cohort. Um, and we find that especially those who have recurrent chest pain, it's, it's uh, much higher. So up to 40% 40, 40 of those patients have um, microvascular dysfunction. Chest pain or ischemia for microvascular dysfunction, which is not detected by our standard testing tools. The focus of this uh, yeah. <laughs> interview necessarily, uh, but you know, how, do, how does that impact how we should be treating like women with chest pain in the emergency department? Um, so I think it, it has implications that they should at least be recognized that the patients uh, that they are not just chest pain syndromes so or it's not supratentorial, um, but they these patients may have ischemia which is under-recognized with our traditional testing, including conventional troponin and including regular stress testing and even regular angiography. And these patients require more sophisticated testing. So if there are patients who keep coming back uh, and they have features of, of, of ischemia, then they should be referred to, to, to uh, providers who specifically look at microvascular dysfunction uh, because they just require additional testing. Um, and then in emergency departments where they do have some of these measures like MRI or PET-CT, uh, there are emergency departments that, that have those, uh, then they should look at the additional measures that you can get through the same testing and, and, and clinically report it. Uh, and I think the, this is going to all change as the high-sensitive proponent enters our market because it was just approved last year. And I do believe, the high, and I have a, a current grant looking at um, high symptom proponent patients who were previously negative by conventional testing, and my suspicion is the high symptom proponent is going to pick up some of these patients. Um, and so it, the, this will become far more relevant to emergency departments because we're going to have these otherwise low-risk patients with positive proponents, and we don't know why. I'm going to switch tracks a little bit and ask how you got involved in AWEM. Yeah, I think I got involved right from the start. I, I you know, the original meeting at Kathleen Clem and I think Sandy Schneider and Gloria Kuhn, they were the, you know, in the, I remember attending that first meeting and uh, and then just, you know, thought it was something interesting and just stayed a part of it. And then I had a more of a role in the, in the AOM leadership when I became um, involved with research, uh, the research committee. Uh, and so, you know, 
I had continued this work of looking at the sex and gender differences uh, in recurrent chest pain, and through that got introduced to the whole world of, uh, I, I guess it started with recurrent chest pain um, for patients who are coming to emergency department, and then became, in, you know, was introduced to this world of that disease may be actually be different between men and, men and women, and so became very interested in how that impacts all the other diseases we took care of. So I became very, um, uh, it, almost like a new science of sex and gender medicine. Um, and so I, and then there was another person at Brown, Allison McGregor, who uh, had been interested in that right around the same time. So we had put in a didactic, um, I think in 2008 for, at SAM. Got accepted, but was like the last didactic of the last, um, uh, you know, the last day of, and, and it was not attended. And so we became perturbed by that, that there's a whole science of sex and gender medicine and there's no, there's no um, recognition in emergency medicine. So uh, we wrote a letter to the editor and that, uh, to the editor-in-chief. And he happened to be somebody in my department, so they didn't accept it. And when I talked to him, he said, well, what's the data? So we ended up doing a study looking at the status of sex and gender medicine in emergency medicine, and we found, you know, as expected, that it's not not very high. And um, we were interested in then using that data to uh, to both create awareness and then create a research agenda for our field. Um, and that's where AWEM came into because. If you look at AOM's mission statement, the third mission is actually looking at sex and gender differences. And so even with light years ahead of other uh, uh, other organizations, in including that part of his agenda. And so uh, when I became involved with the research, AOM research committee, we wanted to do a consensus conference on uh, sex and gender medicine. Right around that time, Marna Greenberg was also, you know, looking at this. So we partnered along with, um, you know, Allison and Esther Chu, and we formed uh, the core group that put an application for the consensus conference on sex and gender medicine. Uh, and so that got approved, and and we used the AOM forum to uh, recruit, to make awareness. We put a series of didactics, a series of lectures, um, manuscripts, uh, both to inform and then to study. Uh, and, and in 2014, that culminated in the uh, consensus conference and the, all, and the proceedings that came out of it. That's incredible. Yeah, so that's how it started. And then as I became much more involved in AWEM through that committee experience and, the, and, the, as, and as a chair experience, I realized how, what an amazing group of women these are. It was just, you know, it's just so different. Like they are just so passionate and so energetic and they don't just talk, but they actually do. Um, so I became interested to be involved, you know, run for the president uh, so that I had the opportunity of working with them. Tell me a little bit more specifically about how the involvement in AWEM has affected your career directly. It sounds like some uh, collaborations and leadership opportunities. Certainly the collaboration and leadership opportunities, certainly it, um, it actually advanced my research uh, itself. Uh, so, you know, the whole, not just through uh, identifying people that I can work with, but also actual scholarship. And then it also allowed me, so the one is, you know, the research path. It actually just made the trajectory much more 
steep in, in uh, the material that came out of it. Uh, and then forming the collaborations of people that I wanted to work with. So, for example, through this consensus conference, I got connected with other people in the cardiovascular area who are working in this, uh, and including some leaders in the field that I was able to work very intimately well, uh, with and, uh, and became part of that group. Uh, but also, I think it allowed me to uh, certainly, you know, as I transitioned into the leadership roles in that, uh, it, it, it allowed me to really formulate a second interest and a second career goal for myself, which was um, really realizing that systems-based interventions have a much bigger impact. And so I became very interested how just restructuring um, and creating systems uh, to allow people to grow, for example, for professional development can actually have huge impact. Um, and, you know, it, it became, that has now become my second big interest. Uh, and I, I think it's like kind of growing together. Uh, so it, it, it gave me the forum to do that and also made me realize how rewarding it was. And when you talk about systems change, um, you know, are you talking and thinking again about sex and gender in emergency medicine or in other ways? Yeah, so the, you know, the first glimpse of that was the consensus conference that allowed the sex and gender for patient care um, and how, you know, having a consensus conference had this ripple effect that is still ongoing, you know, it translated into an interest group. It, it translated into this whole collaborative group of research and didactics and, you know, international and national collaborations. Uh, but then the second piece was professional development and faculty development, how op creating opportunities and creating systems to, um, uh, and, and resources for people can allow them to advance through the career. So not just mentorship, but like also like through AOM, you know, we created these online modules, we created, you know, these didactics, uh, scholarship, um, you know, we collected data um, to, to identify where women in emergency medicine are, and we use that data to actually inform some of the processes that were put in place, including like the pre-conference workshop and the, the focus of each workshop. Um, so, you know, a lot of resources that you create that affects not just one person, one institution, but the whole academic female emergency physicians as a, as a group. It was interesting when I, you know, as, as president, I had reached out to other uh, societies and other specialties, and to see uh, what else is out there to see if we can incorporate some of the things that you know people who um, specialties that have been around for much longer um, uh, have already put in place. And what I realized was uh, there were some things we learned uh, and we incorporated, such as. Um, uh, having a, a forum to collect data all the time. Um, yeah, but then the, what I realized was, we are, you know, in many ways some of the resources that we put together um, and continue to put together every year is, 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 several, is much more than other societies are putting in. So it's uh, very gratifying to see that in some ways we were light years ahead for a, a new specialty. Yeah, um, that's definitely a theme that I've heard as well. Um, what would you say is the biggest system change that needs to occur in order to achieve greater gender equity in our field? It's an important question that I don't have the full answer to. Uh, 
um, because we actually collect data on that right now. Um, so we do have an SAM equity workforce uh, that was created as a follow-up to the paper that we published as part of AWEM, um, in which we showed that the, there were these uh, inequities. Uh, and through the, this task force, we're actually interviewing chairs and vice chairs to figure out uh, what are the barriers at different institutions and what are the perceived solutions. Um, and I think, you know, we're still learning. So I don't have uh, all the answers, but I'm hoping that we will have answers in the next year or so. Um, I personally think that while we are, you know, it, it actually has to be a two-pronged approach. Um, I think we need to put resources uh, to, to train the faculty, right, to make sure that when opportunities come, that they are ready. So, well, it, you know, we, for, and that's exactly the kind of stuff that AWEB does, which is for professional development for early and mid-career faculty to, to create that pipeline. But I think the second approach, and it has to be, is uh, that it has to be on, at an institutional level as well. There needs to be uh, systems that have to be um, policies put in place, not just policies, but like uh, a, a cadre of resources that um, we're actually learning through these interviews that there's such heterogeneity in, this, in what is available at the institutions that if we can even put a list of like 10 or five things that everybody can easily ad adopt, I think um, simple solutions like that can make a big difference. Uh, so it has to, there has to be effort made by institutions to make sure that there are opportunities that are put in place when people are ready, and then you also have to create the workforce that they are ready uh, to embrace those opportunities when the right kind com time comes. How do you think these experiences have translated into greater gender equity in your own workplace? So I would say maybe in a couple of ways. Um, so uh, I have been fortunate that I'm under the one of the few institutions that has a female le leadership. Uh, so it, it, it is, we already have some things that are given, recognition that advancement of uh, faculty, both men and women, but specifically women is, impor is important that exists. Um, having said that, it's a big program. So uh, as one of the things that I brought back from AOM was just a peer support group, because one of the things I've really enjoyed about AOM is you go there, you share experiences, and you realize that many of the hurdles and achievements that you have are common themes, and you can learn from each other. So that peer support group I, I really value at AOM. And at, in our department, what we started doing was luncheons uh, for women of different stages, you know, just like an open luncheon that the department pays for. That we have, it started at a monthly, and then we do it every every other month, uh, where we just bring up, you know, we have one item that we bring up that we usually talk about, like imposter syndrome or, you know, uh, promotion guidelines for our institution and things like that. But then we just chat and we just connect. Uh, so I thought that was something that um, AOM helped us create here. The second was uh, just being involved with how recognizing important women in the department. Uh, so just through the, how AOM recognizes and has created this cadre of awards to recognize uh, women in our specialty, we thought it was important to at least recognize your peers who may qualify for those awards. 
know, focused effort on putting them up uh, was a more recent change in our department. We were just not doing it in general uh, before. That's great. How would you say that gender has affected your own career development? I think through, through life, I've chosen things that are not necessarily clear-cut. Um, so choosing in, you know, emergency medicine for where I came from, choosing research in an area which is not that very clear-cut, uh, where the resources are not aligned because it's not clear-cut, I've learned to navigate um, you know, kind of and navigate and, and figure out nuanced ways of dealing with things. And I, I think, you know, women in general and women physicians, and particularly academic women physicians, face that like every day, right? Like the, when things are not very clear cut and they have to create their own opportunities. Uh, so in that way, um, you know, I think gender plays a very clear role uh, because we just have to figure things out. and and talking to other women who have kind of created their own paths in the same way, which are not very clear-cut and which, you know, there's no clear system of mentorship and sponsorship the way it's, at least you see in the literature or how people talk about it. Um, I, I feel like it's different and, and be, I've had to create my own path. What career accomplishment would you say that you're most proud of? Uh, and I don't know if it's an accomplishment yet, but uh, I think putting this microvascular dysfunction on the map for emergency medicine is something that I'm most proud of. It just came off, you know, it's required many years to, to, to even put it into a paper. Um, and I, I, I feel like that was a, a goal and I think it has, you know, and I have to continue to work on that. So it's not a perfect goal there yet, but it's an intermediate step which I'm, I'm very proud of. I think what I'm most, uh, I had the most fun with was actually the AWEM presidency. Uh, it was, it was uh, just a lot of fun doing something with a very, um, it was a diverse and very uh, an amazing group of women that I just enjoyed so much. I learned and grew so much in that experience. What piece of advice might you give a younger version of yourself or an AWEM member at an earlier stage of her career? I would say don't wait for, uh, for your mentor to reach out to you. Um, I think women, and especially when I look back, I, even though I had mentors and some very good mentors, I was kind of sitting there expecting that they will pick me out from step one to step two. Uh, and it took me about five years to realize that you actually have to create your own agenda and you have to bring it and you have to like kind of push it forward. So I would, I, that, that's probably the, and when I made that switch, it actually helped me the most. Uh, and I would, I would, that's what I would tell anybody who's starting early, that uh, when you have a mentor, if you've identified a mentor or people you're going to work with, then uh, you need to reach out constantly and keep the needle moving forward. Please name three other A1 members we should interview, um, maybe one around your career stage, one slightly more junior and, or one slightly more senior, or just three outstanding women. Yes, so that was a good question because there's just so many. Um, I tried to think of people who uh, 
are not already clearly there that other people have may have mentioned, uh, and they may, they may already be on your list. But uh, for the senior women, I thought uh, Libby Nestor, who's at Brown, um, who is, you know, I don't know her too well, but the reason she came to mind is because she was. She, uh, uh, I, I've just been impressed how she advocates and how she has put other people within her department, other women in the department, for different awards and for different promotions. I think she was their vice chair of either promotion or something, um, who has just stepped off that role. But it was just impressive how she put up like all these different people uh, for different awards and has promoted them through their careers. Um, so I thought that she, she should be somebody who should be recognized for that. Uh, and then for somebody who's around my stage is Marna Greenberg. Um, I had the opportunity of working with Marna, you know, through the consensus conference, but then since then as part of the sex and gender medicine interest group. And I just find her just one of those few gems who's truly invested in in students, residents, people who she oversees, like she just goes out of the way in cultivating them and genuinely cares about their growth uh, and is a you know, stickler for details, making sure that she makes all the resources available for them um, and continues to like hound other people to make sure that they, they, they give their, her students uh, the attention they deserve. Um, and then somebody who's junior is, so somebody in my department, Rachel Liu, um, she was president of Ultrasound Group before, but she's still a relatively junior, you know, she's I think just in the transition of the early to mid now. Um, but she's just fantastic and um, what I appreciate about her is just how she thinks outside the box constantly and, um, and hence has really advanced the field of ultrasound within emergency medicine. Anything else about AWAM or about yourself I haven't asked that you'd like to share? The, the only other thing about AWAM that I, you know, I was just thinking this morning of what other thing that has fascinated about AWAM is um, even leaving uh, the presidency, I'm not as intimately involved with the executive group. Um, what uh, encourages me is how there is a turnover. It's not just led by three or four people who originally started it. There's a succession plan. Um, which has helped create, you know, bring in constant people, new energy and new passion, uh, which is what makes AWAM so rich. You know, people like you, look, I didn't work with you before, but you are here and you're doing all this fantastic stuff. Um, and I think that's what will keep the, the, the resource that, uh, that it currently is at. Well, thank you. And it certainly wouldn't have been possible without work from people like you, so. Yeah, um, carry on. Thanks, and same to you. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. Join us next time for our chat with violence prevention expert Dr. Megan Ranney about her path as an emergency physician, researcher, and advocate. See you next time.